ransomware attacks and the amounts being paid are on the rise? And how is the threat landscape evolving in 2022? These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. Ransomware continues to amass new victims. Last week, the heads of Britain's National Cybersecurity Centre, as well as Privacy Watchdog, the Information Commissioner's Office, said that in recent months, they have seen an increase in the number of ransomware attacks and ransom amounts being paid. To discuss, I'm joined by Matthew Schwartz, Executive Editor for Data Breach Today and Europe. Matt, why is the ransomware problem not just persisting, but apparently intensifying? Well, if there's one thing we've seen from ransomware groups, it's that they're really good at innovation. There's an imperative for them to get better at what they do to counter improving defenses and victims not wanting to pay. So by getting better at what they do, they're bringing more pressure to bear in yet more innovative ways. In recent weeks, for example, there's a ransomware group called Black Cat, also known as Alva, and it has been allowing users of its data leak site to search on the data leaks that it's gathered from victims. So this seems to be an attempt by the group to add pressure on victims to say, look, if you don't pay, we're going to list you on our data leak site. And if you still don't pay, we're going to take that data that we stole from you. And we're going to not just make it available via a dump on our website, but we're going to give functionality to search for confidential information or passwords, social security numbers to anybody who comes to our site. So that's one way that they've been adding pressure. Another way based on a report from REST Security that just came out, that's a cybersecurity firm, again with Black Cat, it's found that the group has upped the base ransom demand to two and a half million dollars. Now, like a lot of things in life, things can get discounted, there can be sale prices, but they're setting the two and a half million dollars as a way to open negotiations with victims and promising a discount of usually up to 50% if a victim pays within perhaps five to seven days. So again, the impetus here is to pressure victims, not just into paying, but into paying quickly. And Matt, do we know how bad the ransomware problem really is? That's a perennial question because we keep seeing these reports about the latest innovations being practiced by ransomware groups and so on. But as you noted in your introduction, the National Cybersecurity Center says that it has been seeing an increase, not just in successful ransomware attacks, but in the amounts going to victims. Now, this is really useful because they've got intelligence that the rest of us don't have, and they're able to say, look, the problem is getting worse. We're normally forced to rely on more anecdotal evidence. For example, the data leak sites that I was mentioning, groups will list victims that don't pay, but they don't list victims who do pay. So we need to infer about how many victims there might be based on how many show up on sites. That's an inexact science, but there's thinking that maybe only a third of ransomware victims end up getting listed. So does that mean that 40 to 60% could be paying the ransom? Open question. Something else we have is that blockchain intelligence firms are tracking cryptocurrency payments that go to wallets that are known to be operated by 
ransomware groups. They don't know all the wallets that get operated by these groups. And intelligence on this front continues to come to light. For example, as people get arrested, groups get disrupted, and you'll see the known ransomware proceeds for recent years continuing to go up and up as a greater realization comes of where the funds were going, which criminals were in control of them. So we've got this kind of imperfect patchwork of intelligence telling us that the problem is bad. We don't know exactly how bad, but it's worse than anybody would really like it to be. And do you think more needs to be done? Definitely. Now, we should acknowledge that lots is being done. There's been a big push, especially since last summer, by Western governments, including the UK, including the United States. They have been pushing domestic businesses to get better at cybersecurity resiliency. So if they get hit by ransomware, they don't need to think twice about paying. They can just restore systems. Now, that's not a snap your fingers and it's done exercise. But again, if we take out the ransomware profits flowing to the attackers, we cut down on their research and development budgets. We also help delegitimize ransomware as a viable, if illicit, money-making concern. These are all good things that help take a bite out of the ransomware business model. Another push has been sanctions for ransomware being lobbed at organizations or ransomware groups operating from Russia, North Korea. And this has helped disrupt the flow of funds to these groups. In particular, Conti recently had to rebrand itself because it was seeing the ransom payments to it dramatically decline after the group backed Russia in the war against Ukraine. So Western governments are taking advantage where they can of things like sanctions as well. Another great point that was voiced recently by security researcher Paul Ducklin of Sophos is even when you do pay, even if you do get a decryptor, the decryptor often doesn't work very well. So you're going to have to spend more money paying somebody else to build you a decryptor that works better. Also, as I mentioned before, restoring systems isn't an easy exercise. It takes time and money. And if you're paying a ransom, you're often just adding to the total bill without doing anything for yourself. You're still going to have to probably rely on backups that you already hopefully have to give you the best chance of recovering the most amount of information in the least amount of time. So why pay these groups? So with these sorts of downsides being voiced, also the threat of violating sanctions, also the fact that this perpetuates the criminal business model, hopefully we will be seeing fewer organizations focus more on preparation so that they never even have to think about having to pay a ransom. Great advice as always, Matt. Thank you very much for your insight. Thank you, Anna. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Over the past year, the cyber threat landscape has continued to evolve and expand as attackers have found new vulnerabilities and ways to infiltrate organizations. But what does the threat landscape really look like today? Casey Ellis, CTO and founder of Bug Crowd, shared his perspective in an interview with our editor, Matthew Schwartz, at the recent ISMG London Summit. Probably the biggest thing is, one, the focus on uh, supply chain risk with open source software. So you saw what happened with Log4j and, and just the complete trash fire that turned into pretty much for the internet. And then you stop for a second and consider that Log4j is, is one of you know, hundreds of thousands of, of open source packages that are out there powering everything at this point in time that could all potentially suffer a similar issue and, and cause a similar set of consequences. 
So I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Log4j was actually a really important and quite a good wake-up call in terms of how people think about that risk and how they manage that risk. Um, it's also attracted a lot of attention into open source as an as a area of vulnerability research. So there's a lot more effort going into potentially on the bad guy side as well as the good guy side, um, figuring out what's vulnerable and how to exploit it. The other one that popped up quite a lot uh, that, that we've observed is really the consequences of COVID. You know, when you think about what happened in 2020, we all had the great zero trust experiment kind of thrust upon us. And, and a whole bunch of people had to change a whole bunch of stuff really quickly. Speed like that is usually the natural enemy of security. So there's consequences of that phase. The phase that we're in now is everyone trying to work out what normal looks like. And there's all sorts of different versions of that. So into that kind of environment, you've got a lot of chaos. You've got a lot of you know, potentially blind spots popping out. And attackers love that. You know, chaos is their friend in terms of getting their thing done. So from a threat landscape standpoint, I, I think that really is talking about the attack surface itself. But what we're also seeing is the attackers actually respond to that. You see the rise of ransomware. There's all sorts of other things that are happening when the threats actually take advantage of this stuff that's continuing to escalate as well. So there's a lot going on. And finally, running user awareness programs continues to be a cornerstone of many corporate information security programs, often driven in part by regulatory requirements. But can you drive cybersecurity risk reduction through awareness and behavioral change alone? Well, this was a question posed by editor Matthew Schwartz to Adam Wedgbury, Head of Enterprise Digital Security Architecture at Airbus, recorded again at our recent London Summit. There's a lot of discussion in the industry about this right now, and there has been thought for quite some time. But I think, uh, as, as almost every topic in the cybersecurity industry, there's no simple answer. So I think a, a lot of the prevailing story today is that, yes, user awareness is almost a panacea of, of security and risk reduction. That's where we need to go. But for me, I think it's, it's the wrong direction. And I guess I'll preface that by saying it certainly has a place. It will never go away. We need to do awareness. We need to do behavioral change and management for cybersecurity. It will never go away. But it's not, for me, a primary source of, of, of risk reduction. And there's a few reasons why. So I've had the, the pleasure over the past number of years of actually holding two roles, uh, one of which is leading the cybersecurity innovation capability uh, at Airbus. Um, a few years ago, we launched a, a group of, of research studies into what we called human-centric cybersecurity. And the idea of that research theme was not just to understand what people do in cybersecurity, so not just the, the behavior from the human factors perspective, but also to understand why we do that. So what's going on in the brain when we make those decisions, when we engage in cyber risky behaviors, for example. So we built a team of neuroscientists, basically, so people that could run experiments with EEG caps, for example, and really understand what's going on in the neurons of the brain when we, when we make decisions. Uh, and that really allowed us to, to look at this topic a little bit more holistically and much, much deeper to understand how we can, we can interact with, with people. But uh, again, to, to preface the discussion, I said it's not the major change. And for me, the, the primary, primary part of that is if we put people on the front line of, of the cyber defense and we look at phishing attacks, for example. So if we are telling our people that they must inspect every single link and that the cyber defense of the whole organization is based upon them recognizing a little umlaut in a, in a URL, for example, we've already lost that battle. There's no way we can get that amount of expertise across all of our user base and keep it current. So if we're relying on that as the front line of defense, I think we failed. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. 
theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Thank you.